we forecast prices and fundamentals. Whether you're a trader, producer, or consumer, you can hedge your bets with Montel's diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing energy matters in an informal setting. This week we return to Brussels to preview the flurry of new legislation being prepared by the European Commission. Already delayed to mid-July, the package will form the framework of the EU objective of cutting emissions by at least 55% from 1990 levels by 2030 and achieving climate neutrality by 2050. Helping us to make sense of the proposals is Siobhan Hall, our Brussels correspondent. A warm welcome to you, Siobhan. Thank you, Richard. Good to have you on board today, but also as a reporter covering all the important, the all-important Brussels beat for Montel News. How is life in Brussels these days? We're moving into the final flurry of lobbying to try and steer the European Commission on the proposals that we are expecting in the middle of July for the Fit for 55 package, which is the name given to it because, like you said, it's all about trying to achieve this new target, this new stricter target of cutting emissions by at least 55% on 1990 levels by 2030. So it's busy. So there's a flurry of packages or proposals, but it's also, as you say, um, a, a massive sort of lobbying endeavor. What, what, does that, what does that entail? So when we talk about lobbying, the one of the main things that we see is position papers. So we see organizations coming out with what they would like to see in the proposals coming up. And they also have private meetings with the Commission and they will also be talking to members of the European Parliament because it is members of the European Parliament and officials from national governments that will ultimately make the decisions on what will be in the final proposals. So there's a two-pronged approach. First, you would like the, as a, from a lobbyist perspective, you're trying to get the Commission to propose something that is close to what you want in the first place. And then you want to lobby the MEPs to ensure that they will agree to what has been proposed. So something that I have noticed a lot in my many years of reporting in Brussels is that once the Commission's proposal comes out, it is very rare that what the Commission proposes is what is agreed. So it's very much a starting point. Mm -hmm. And that makes the next 18 months to two years very interesting because we will see all the organizations, if they haven't managed to get the European Commission to put it into the proposal, they will be lobbying hard their national governments and their members of the European Parliament to make sure or to try and make sure that what they want is in what gets put into binding legislation. So some interesting times ahead. Very interesting. But where does the main kind of lobbying activity occur? Is it before the proposals are put on the table or after, or is it a bit sort of a, a mixture of the two? I would say it is continuous. Okay. So if you're a lobbyist <laughs> and your goal is to get what you want into the proposal, then you start early and you don't stop until <laughs> they take the final vote. Honestly, you mm. will see lobbying continuing right up until the final vote in the parliament and to confirm what is binding legislation. So it never stops. Mm. It's continuous. I, I've, you know, I've heard talk of a sort of revolving door at uh, at the the commission uh, building with all the the lobbyists coming uh, continuously in and out but you know so it's so surprising that they have 
that time to, to, to work on these proposals in a way. But uh, so it appears really that the political machine hasn't, hasn't really slowed down uh, in, during the pandemic then, Siobhan. Oh, no. Mm. I think obviously everyone has had to adapt to working more online. In some respects, it gives some people more equal access in a way because previously commission officials would be asked to travel to speak at various events and now they're not traveling. Mm. And so that means they can be present in many online events, many more online events than they could physical events. But it does mean, so as someone who covers the Brussels beat, we all miss having chats around the table during a coffee break of an event. We miss the, the personal interactions and we look forward to those coming back again. Absolutely. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, I mean, the work doesn't stop. It just moves to a different platform. So you, got the, you don't get that sort of personal touch with, with the relevant people during the press conferences and, and, and briefings, et cetera, then? Yeah, mm, yeah. You know, that's that's a, a big loss. You know, uh, hopefully we can get back to that uh, before too long. But Siobhan, I mean, the, the, the commission delayed the Fit for 55 package. What, what were the reasons behind that? Are they clear at all? Yeah. So, I mean, as you said at the beginning, it's a flurry of proposals. I think at the moment it's going to be 12 different proposals. That's a big amount of legislation to propose all at the same time. And when the commission comes with proposals, they have to go through various internal processes before they can be adopted by the commission as an official proposal. Mm. And in this case, some of, a couple of the proposals, so I think it was the Renewable Energy Directive and the Energy Efficiency Directive, they weren't going to be able to complete the internal processes in time to meet the, the original date, which was the 30th of June. So they had the option to either split it into two smaller packages or delay two weeks and and put, keep them as one big package. They do love a big package. I'll <laughs> say that about the commission. They really do love to bring it all out on the same day. It doesn't make it easy for the people who have to cover it, but they do like to do it all at once. Exactly. I, you know, that was the, the old winter package or the clean energy. That, that was over a thousand pages, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 And this one, I think, will be... I think this one is bigger. Yes. So they just came from... Spending, you know, three three years changing the power markets and everything to do with that electricity to meet to accommodate more renewables, and now they're coming again to change many many aspects, many of which have only just been agreed to be changed anyway. So, um, you talk about a revolving door for the lobbyists and the commission. I mean, it can feel a bit like it's a revolving door for legislation. So, <laughs> just as you finish one part, then you have to start again. There are people here calling for improvements to the clean energy package, which in many respects has not been fully implemented yet. So they're calling for changes before the most recent changes have been implemented. So a bit like painting the Firth or Fourth Bridge then, Siobhan? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was the other thing I was thinking of. <laughs> so, so, yes. um, so and obviously makes the, the job of, you know, us journalists, but also analysts, etc., who have to then sift through these thousands of pages of, of, of legislative proposals makes it quite a hard task, even though maybe they sort of summarise them in, in, in press releases. But I'd like to sort of start off, Siobhan, because there, there seems, to, you know, there's been a lot of talk of a green deal and the recovery fund. Are these two things the same thing or are they different? So the European Green Deal is the overarching framework for the EU to meet its goal to have net zero emissions by 2050. So that's a policy goal. And then the recovery fund is driven by the need for the EU to rebuild its economy after the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And there is a link because the money from the recovery fund has to be spent on, well, a proportion of the money from the recovery fund has to be spent on projects that will help the EU meet the European Green Deal objectives. So the idea is that we recover, but as we recover, we recover in a particular direction, which goes in the same direction as European Green Deal. So there's going to be more money uh, for projects that will cut emissions, for projects that promote renewables, that promote energy efficiency, those kind of projects. So that's the link between them. Okay. I mean, it's good to clarify because I don't think maybe a lot of listeners listeners appreciate the difference or how they actually are connected. What kind of money are we talking? Are we talking several, you know, we must be talking hundreds of billions of euros in the in the recovery fund? Yes. Yes, we are. So the plan is for the recovery fund to have 672.5 billion euros available to help national governments spend on projects to help them recover, boost their economies after the pandemic. And within that, the European Commission wants the governments to spend around 249 billion. So that's about 37% on projects that will help the EU reach the European Green Deal objective to have net zero emissions by 2050. How does this work? I mean, how is the money allocated? Is it grants? Is it loans? Do some countries get will get some countries get more than others or some technologies more? It's going to be allocated via grants and loans. And it's going to be linked to the country's national energy and climate plans. And essentially, the national governments have to send in a request for the money saying what they want to spend it on and the commission will review it all before allocating money. Mm. So that's how the commission is going to make sure that some of the money or enough of the money is allocated to um, green projects. Those reports from the, or those requests from the national governments are coming at the Mm. moment. So we won't know for a few weeks or months yet how the money will be allocated actually, Mm. but it's an, it's an interplay between the national governments request what they want and then the European Commission reviews it. Is there a process in places where we can test to see that the, the, the funds were allocated properly and correctly? Yes. I mean, all EU money has to be audited mm-hmm. and checked afterwards. That tends to happen quite a long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. But because the European Green Deal is such a big political priority for the European Commission, I know that or I would expect the Commission to be really broadcasting the projects that are being supported in order to fulfill the European Green Deal objectives. So I would expect to see quite a lot of information about that coming out from both the Commission and, and the national government. No, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. We've already seen, as you mentioned, some of the reports have already come in from national governments, Italy, Spain, for example, and and, uh, and quite a large focus on, 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 on green hydrogen and uh, other renewable projects. So it's, yeah... A lot of money floating around here, potentially, to create a, a, a boom in, in renewable energy. Maybe that's what the Commission wants. Absolutely. If you're going to have an economic recovery, political message is invest in technologies that will get us to net zero emissions by 2050, but will also drive jobs and growth mm. now. So build back better, in a sense. Yes. Yeah. If we go into the to the the nitty gritty of the Fit for Fifty Five package, I mean, one of the key elements here, and one of 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 a vital importance, you know, for many listeners who will be watching out for what it what it means for for the EU ETS, and what are the the reforms there that are envisaged, uh, Siobhan? Yes, yeah, so the ETS reform is going to be very interesting because 
in order to meet the higher 55% overall emissions target, the ETS is going to have to cut more emissions and cut them faster mm. than originally planned. And so there are various ways of doing that. And we don't know yet which combination of ways the commission will choose, but you can make the linear reduction factor higher. Mm. So you're cutting emissions at a faster rate. You could be making changes to the market stability reserve where you're putting more allowances in than were planned to reduce the amount of allowances available in the market. You could have a one-off reduction in the allowances, which is a way to tackle, as we all know, the big surplus that has built up um, over the years. And all of these different approaches have different sectors and people lobbying for and against them. So as we know, the ETS is a very sensitive subject because it's not just energy companies, it's also industrial companies. And so there's always a very lively debate <laughs> about the role of free allowances and who gets free allowances. We know the Commission is looking at proposing a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And this is interesting because it's looking at creating a pool of virtual allowances that would be linked to the ETS. And so you would have potentially a new market for people trading carbon to trade in. You, there are potentially going to be options for trading in both markets, hedging across both markets. And it's going to be very interesting also because the carbon border adjustment mechanism is bringing a carbon price to people outside the EU. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they react, whether they react with carbon pricing systems of their own or whether they try and block or refuse to uh, comply with the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So it's going to be very interesting. It's a very politically sensitive area. But what's interesting is that they first came up with the idea of, a, or France came up with the idea of a carbon border tax more than 10 years ago, and it went nowhere. But suddenly people are thinking this is an idea that could fly. So there has been, it's not a new idea, but now people are confident enough to go through all the effort of actually proposing it. So that's interesting. Is, is there anything to do with the, the lack of, um, I mean, with, with the UK exit from the from the EU, that, that there's more of a, or is that completely irrelevant here? I, as in the, the fact that, you know, they're making progress with this uh, carbon border tax? No, the UK was always one of the biggest proponents of emission cuts and pro-renewables and market-based systems in the EU. So I think it's more because we see other big economic blocks like China or Japan looking to commit to cutting emissions by 2050 and looking at ways that that can be done. So the EU is not the only country looking to cut its emissions by 2050. That's part of the wider international climate agreement. Absolutely. But it's not, it's not controversial, is it? I mean, I mean, there's the WTO is not quite sure how to, how to, how to handle this in, in terms of uh, global trade. So until the commission make the proposal, it's really difficult to know how people will react. Mm. And from our perspective, as people interested in energy and carbon markets, some of the debate is about whether it's going to be fair for less developing countries, but it's for energy and electricity perspective, it's probably the nearer neighbours who are more, more relevant. Mm. It is controversial. 
and it'll be interesting to follow. <laughs> but mm. until we know what's in the proposal, yeah. and I heard someone say, if members of the WTO don't complain about it, it won't be doing its job. Okay. Mm. So <laughs> it has to come out and people have to complain about it and it will work its way through. I mean, we don't know yet whether it will fly or not, but it'll be interesting to follow its progress. Absolutely. As you said, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Siobhan, you know, saying the proposals that come out are very different from the, the ones that's actually passed and, and, and goes through the whole process. So, so that would be interesting to see what they end up with. But there's another aspect here we've talked about on an earlier pod about carbon contracts for difference. That's part of the ETS reform as well, right? Yes. Well, as far as we know, or we suspect, the Commission is going to be looking at coming with a European approach to carbon contracts for difference. Carbon contracts for difference are also turning out to be controversial mm -hmm. because there are some lobbyists who are concerned that a carbon contract for difference is going to help industrial companies reduce their carbon emissions more quickly, which would then undermine demand for allowances in the ETS market and therefore potentially push down on carbon prices in the ETS market. And the difficulty there is that it's the carbon prices in the ETS market that are supposed to be sending the economic signal mm. to encourage everyone to reduce their emissions. So there are concerns that the carbon contracts for difference, whilst being potentially an effective way to get industrials to cut their emissions uh, more quickly in their sector, it might have adverse impacts on other sectors, that it would it would reduce the pressure on other sectors to cut their emissions. So that's an interesting debate. It'll mm. be interesting to see how that turns out. But there's an added element also to to the renewables directive and then the energy efficiency directive that, you know, there's an argument there that you reduce demand for the key policy instrument, which is the ETS, by by lowering demand for for carbon allowances. Yeah. So this is this is not a new debate. Hmm. This happens every time <laughs> there's a talk of reforming everything. And yeah, it's the same principle. So what we see in the Renewables Directive and the Energy Efficiency Directive, and the Commission has already estimated that it would need to increase the targets in both areas in order to meet the overall 55% emissions reduction target. So for renewables, the forecast from the Commission was that the renewables share target we'd have to go up from the current 32%, at least 32%, to 38 to 40%, so several percentage points higher. Mm. And something similar in the Energy Efficiency Directive, at the moment it's 32.5%, the target for 2030, mm. and the Commission estimated it would have to go up to 36 or 37% by 2030. And obviously, increasing your share of renewables and improving your energy efficiency is reducing your carbon emissions. So there is this interplay between the renewables targets, the energy efficiency targets, the ETS reforms. There's also an energy taxation directive, which could encourage people to switch to lower carbon fuels and energies. So there's, there's a lot of different mm. interactions going on. It's not always clear at the end. It's not an exact science. Mm. I think that's the best way to put it. Those are things the the policy wonks have to have to work out and iron out. I think I suppose, um, and our job is to to make sure that uh, the listeners and readers are, are informed of of the latest changes to to these directives. But what's coming with the renewables directive? There, Siobhan, is that uh, you know um, we've just had quite a few changes, as you mentioned in in recent years. What what's new with with the latest proposals, or can we expect? So when we look at what 
is going to be new in the Renewables Energy Directive. Apart from the targets, having higher targets, the Commission is also looking at ways to support corporate power purchase agreements as a way to promote renewables. There will also have to be some changes to the guarantees of origin system because one of the ways of moving away from fossil fuels is very likely to increase the use of hydrogen, preferably green hydrogen. And so there's going to be issues there about how you certify green hydrogen and guarantees of origin are likely to be part of that. And there's also talk of introducing a some kind of credit trading system for the renewable power used in electric vehicles, again, as a way to promote using more renewable power, particularly in, in transport. So there's quite a lot of new ideas coming out there. The date is the 14th of July, is it? Yes. Yeah. Sounds it's going to be quite a busy day for you, Siobhan. It will be, yeah. <laughs> and maybe the week or, or the weeks following that um, before, and then you will take a, be able to take a well-earned break. Yes. Just to, to finish off today, Siobhan, let's talk about the uh, taxonomy, the EU taxonomy, and uh, taxonomy even. <laughs> this was quite controversial. And in the end, there was a bit of a fudge or they kicked the final decision into the long grass regarding whether gas or a nuclear was green or sustainable energy. Isn't that right? Yeah. So the taxonomy, which is a way for the European Commission to give potential investors an idea of what can be considered sustainable or not. Mm. The taxonomy turned out to be extraordinarily uh, controversial. <laughs> and there was a very big debate about whether gas and nuclear, like you say, could be considered sustainable. For nuclear, there are some more reports being carried out and the commission hopes to have the information, more information from experts by the end of the summer. Mm -hmm. And then if it finds a way to say that nuclear should be on the list, then that list would have come out later this year. Mm -hmm. So the issue with gas is that for some countries, it is sustainable or it could be considered sustainable to move from using mainly coal to gas as an interim step before moving to an actual low carbon, proper low or zero carbon fuel. And so the commission is going to try and look for ways to see how that could be assessed what criteria then that could be met to make sure that that could actually be considered sustainable. But here in Brussels, there is a very big anti-gas lobby who sees natural gas as locking us into a fossil fuel future. And so the commission is having to think very hard about how it can ensure that natural gas is used as a bridging te technology or a transitional fuel and that it's not locking in fossil fuel use beyond 2030 and 2050. And I think that's also the feeling in Germany where the Green Party is very strong and should there be a Green candidate assuming the, the job of, of, of Chancellor in the country following the election in September, then there could be quite a change of policy towards gas. So I think that's something that we'll also be watching closely. But Siobhan, thanks ever so much for, for joining the Montel Weekly podcast today and, and previewing what's this flurry of, of legislation that's coming our way. And I look forward to reading all your reports and uh, stories on, on this um, you know, uh, incredible amount of legislation that's coming in July. So thanks again. Thank you, Richard. I look forward to writing about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> so listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly podcast. Please direct message any suggestions 
questions or you know let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show you can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com lastly remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on montel news you can subscribe on apple podcasts and spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from thank you and goodbye